welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values and how we can navigate the many, many things that divide us. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice about their deepest principles, how they think about, how they're using their platform to shape our common life and what they've learned about dealing with difference. Sacred's been going for five years now, and we are not, uh, we couldn't claim to be, you know, super early adopters in the podcast world, but we've certainly been here a lot longer than some of these Johnny-come-latelys, which means there's a huge library of interviews with people for you to go and explore. They come from um, not every, but I'd say getting on for every different political perspective, metaphysical belief and profession you can think of. The whole point of the project is that listen to people on both sides of the variety of divides coming from a variety of perspectives to get us out of our tribal bubbles, to challenge our um, preconceptions and prejudices about people. So I would invite you not just to click on the episodes with people that you like the sound of or who you think are a bit like you, uh, but to notice that in yourself, I totally do it too. But maybe have a listen to some of the people that you think might be more challenging. You can alternate, you know, like having a drink and then a glass of water throughout the evening. It shouldn't all feel um, super challenging. But what I am trying to do here, what I hope um, you experience as you listen is just a sense of growing empathy uh, and a challenge to that tendency that we have to put people in boxes and see them as a them or tribe rather than a complex, beautiful, fragile, you know, flawed human person in the world. Just before we get into today's episode, I also wanted to remind you that we have our first Sacred Live event in a long time, uh, coming up on the 19th of April. Bookings are open. You can head over to the Theos website, go to our social media. I'm sure I will be spamming you with many posts about it because I am massively looking forward to this event. I am so delighted that Oliver Berkman is going to be my guest in conversation with me that night. He is this extraordinarily wise and thought-provoking voice in the broader kind of self-help universe. He was famous for the Guardian column. Um, This column will change your life. He is this restless quester after wisdom, but he comes at it with this slightly sardonic, cocked eyebrow look. You know, he's not a sort of gushy, woo-woo guru but is someone who does think deeply and seriously about what a good life might mean and how we thrive. I spent some time with him at the Realisation Festival last year and got to know him a little bit, and I just I cannot wait to talk to him again in public in front of you guys. Uh, it's on the 19th of April. It's in Westminster. It should be really easy to get to for those of you in London and hopefully some of you within reach of London. Um, I know that many listeners are scattered all over the country and indeed all over the world, so I am really sorry if this feels like an annoying uh, FOMO thing. If it goes well, we hope to um, do some events elsewhere, but this is our first foray back into these waters. Um, And I would just love you to come. I would love you to come and bring a friend uh, who you might want to introduce to the podcast, who you might just want an opportunity to have a deeper conversation with. We will be getting you talking to each other. It won't just be a kind of static um, Oliver and I talking from up the front because 
Community is this very overused word, right? And listeners of the sacred are not in any sense a community in that you don't yet, many of you don't know each other. Uh, I think Casper to Kyle and, and Vanessa Zelton always talked about the definition of community as someone who will bring you soup when you're sick, which is a very kind of American uh, framing, but um, I kind of get what they mean. However, what you are is a bunch of very interesting individuals from my experience. And um, if you if you listen to the podcast, I think what it guarantees is that you're someone who is trying to keep a soft heart towards the world and is curious and is curious even about people who honestly you sense might not like you which I've concluded is the reason sort of founding reason mostly that we don't like other people um and that you are thinking and you're thinking deeply and and listening and of course it's like 50% ego because you like the thing that I make so of course I like you but I also uh just feel a very tender heart towards you guys who've shown up and supported this project and walked with us and um, makes me feel more hopeful about the world, honestly. Uh, I'm going to stop gushing. All of which is to say I can't wait to meet a bunch of you and re-meet people that I've not met yet. And it's quite a small venue, so I generally, genuinely do hope there will be a chance for human conversation and encounter. 19th of April, book your tickets. We really look forward to seeing you there. In this episode, you will hear an interview I had with novelist Lizzie Damalola Blackburn. Lizzie's first novel, Yinka, Where's Your Husband?, is a rom-com set in Peckham, which has been enough of a success that Lizzie's been able to give up her previous job in the charity sector to work on her next book. And those of you who know anything about publishing will know how rare that is. We spoke about colorism and the pressure to settle down and diversifying voices in publishing. There are some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Lizzie, in a second, I am going to ask you what is sacred to you, which always feels like pushing people like directly into the deep end. So having had a little bit of time to think about uh, what your sacred value or sacred values might be, bracketing out kind of family, what mm-hmm. bubbled up for you as you were reflecting on this very difficult question? Um, I think the whole principle of like treating people the way you want to be treated. So treating people with respect and even just like manners. Um, so that's something that I would never compromise on. So if someone was to offer me money, not to say thank you and please ever again, I don't think that's something I could do. <laughs> <laughs> Your <laughs> parents trained you so well. <laughs> Maybe for a day, but we have to like go back to all the people I didn't say thank you and please to and say, I'm so, so sorry. It was because of this. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just think it's just like, that's how I would want to be treated. I would want someone to say thank you and please to me. So, um, and, you know, it kind of stems from my faith as well. So um, in the word it talks about, you know, doing to others, how would you, how you'd want done to you. Um, and also, you know, stemming from that is the whole like um, notion of asking people how they are which kind of fits into the whole polite kind of thing that I'm talking about. So, you know, whether that's the shop cashier at Tesco's or the, the taxi driver. Um, and I've realised that, you know, lots of like good conversations can come out of that single question. And sometimes they are surprised when I ask them, how are you? Because 
um, there's a lot of like invisible unsung heroes society and um, people just kind of like, um, not deliberately ignore them, but, you know, I think we're so busy in our day to day life that we kind of like just kind of stop to have human interactions. And um, yeah, I found that I've had some good conversations and even like advice <laughs> from people just from, you know, starting that icebreaker question. How are you? How's your day? Yeah, it's this sort of discipline of not treating human beings as objects, isn't it? They're not just they're not part of the car if they're an mm-hmm. Uber driver, you know, they're not part of the the sort of machine of service delivery. It's a human being with a set of fragilities. And I think we're constantly in a world that makes it easy to forget the human beings around us. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a lovely kind of tiny spiritual practice. Yeah. And also it's a way to kind of like, not just be on my phone. (laughs) Do you understand what I mean? Like. Oh like yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eyes up, eyes up. Um, I would love to hear a bit about your childhood and particularly any big ideas that were in the air, political, philosophical, religious, anything else, things that have been sort of formative to you. But mainly I just want you to tell me a bit of a story. You're a wonderful storyteller. Tell me a bit of a story of uh, your 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 girlhood, your growing up. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I was a a big reader. <laughs> I loved reading. And um, I remember I used to even read like books for adults because I just, any book that was around at home, I would just, you know, read it, um, including the Bible. So even though I grew up in a Christian household, so both my parents believe in God, we never really started to go to church until maybe I was 10 or so. And that was when my grandma came from Nigeria and realized that we were spending Sundays at home just chilling <laughs> she was not impressed I know, yeah <laughs> but um I think I found my faith way before then and it was because you know I was picking up the bible just by being a curious you know avid reader as a kid and um I always kind of like felt that God was real and um a huge kind of sense of like love from God as well um And um, even when it came to Easter, I would watch the crucifixion of Jesus on, you know, on TV. And I would cry my eyes out (laughs) when they would crucify Jesus. I was like, oh, why? He's such a a nice man. (laughs) Um, And I've had like supernatural experiences even when I was a kid. So from a very young age, like God has been very real in my life. What are your mum and dad like? I guess, what were they like when you were a kid? So my dad was kind of like the traditional, um, I guess you can say stereotypical Nigerian dads who, you know, wanted me to face my education, to grow up to be a lawyer. Um, Yeah, his like, his uh, mantra was always books first, play later. (laughs) Uh, My mum, on the other hand, she was very quiet. She worked um, for charity and... um, you know, later on in life, I did actually work for a charity um, in the sector for 10 years. And I think my um, love for the third sector came from, you know, my mom and, you know, um, going to fundraising events with her, you know, sometimes going to her office and seeing what she she does um, at work. So, um, yeah, she's like very nurturing and very um, caring and a very good listener as well. Tell me about when writing came into your life? When did it become clear that you didn't, you weren't just going to consume books, that you might actually Mm. produce some? 
Um, so again, back when I was a kid, um, so as well as reading, I loved writing and I was heavily influenced by authors such as Jacqueline Wilson and Black- Mallory Blackman, um, who are like children um, and YA authors. And I love their writing style. When I remember just like spending my free time just trying to write um, a novel. Um, and I think my first attempt of writing a novel was when I was maybe nine or ten. Um, so, yeah, I had a fun um, love for writing since then. But then it kind of stopped when I went to college. I didn't get back into it until my early 20s, you know, um, and that was because at the time I was kind of feeling pressure by my mom to settle down and decided to write like some of my experience into, well, turn into a short story. But I want to ask, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is how we learn to understand each other better across these deep divides that we maybe do really exist. I don't know, but that we certainly create in our minds, in our labels, through our tribes, you know, some listeners that people listen to the sacred from all kinds of different positions on politics, on religion, and there'll be some people listening who are like, oh, she's a Christian. I'm not, I don't know if I can connect with her. What, what do you think the role of stories is? Maybe particularly novels, but stories in general. What do they do in terms of how we can engage with each other? I think stories are great in terms of like reflecting people's experience, which is why I feel like um, stories need to be as diverse as possible and reflect um, different sectors in society. Um, I also feel like stories can unite us as well. So even though, you know, um, in my book, Yinka is a Christian, she's of Nigerian heritage. Um, she goes through things which many people go through, which is, you know, the pressure to settle down and, you know, feeling um, unworthy at times and whether she's worthy of love. And these are all kind of like universal, relatable themes. Yeah, it's really noticeable in your book how... there's the sort of rom-com trope of like, I'm single and I need to find a date by a wedding, you know, um, (laughs) that gets flipped to be about self-love. But it's, you know, it's it's familiar enough. Lots of people call it the kind of Bridget Jones thing. You know, there's there's, there's other narratives and stories that readers can peg it to. But then there's the specificity and the particularity of kind of Nigerian heritage community in South London. And it, Honestly, I live in Peckham. I go to church with a lot of, of kind of Nigerian heritage Christians. And I came to this book thinking, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this is so embarrassing, but like, oh, I'll be really familiar with all of this. This, I, was just, I learned so much. I was just like <laughs> so interested and um, stimulated by that kind of just like the picture of a world, a world that intersects with mine, literally mm-hmm. on my, on Rye Lane over there. <laughs> but also doesn't, you know, because we're all so tribal in our little bubbles. Mm. How how much did kind of the character of Yinka as a single woman getting all her aunties saying, when are you going to get married, you know, when is your husband Yinka, um, lead? And how much was, actually I want to tell a story that has a heroine who is a Nigerian Christian, and I don't see that many of those around. So I think initially um, it was kind of like, like writing Yinka's story was a chance for me to have a cathartic release because I was kind of feeling that pressure, you know, from my mum to find a husband. Um, she wasn't as bad as Yinka's mum. <laughs> like she didn't pray for him in public, thank God. 
but I did kind of like doubt whether I would ever find love. And so um, initially it was just a way for me to kind of like, you know, write those feelings into, you know, short story and um, also make, you know, make it quite funny and witty so that um, to kind of help take the pain away, I guess. Um, but then the more hmm. I started to write and the more I became invested in Yinka's story, um, the more I saw the potential of it as well. And also um, how it can be, you know, life-changing for many people in Yinka's shoes of so feeling that way. Um, and so it, it became a calling. So it became, it shifted from a fun thing to do to, okay, I feel like God wants me to write this book and I feel like it can make a huge difference to a lot of people in the world. And, you know, it can take me five, 10 years. I just have to write it, you know, regardless of the, the timeline. And um, yeah, I just kind of felt like it was uh, my divine calling to to write this story. Just to stay on the kind of, uh, kind of Peckham Nigerian life for a minute, how much did you feel you had to handhold readers who might not be so familiar? And I, uh, part of my question is I've been reading Jandela Benson's um, Hope and Glory on your recommendation, oh, which I also really lovely. liked. So good. Um, but I felt like, as I was, I was sort of zooming out a bit to think about the craft of the storytelling and how much you kind of define some terms or explain how people are using words that the reader might not have come across or things like that. Did you, were there various, in the drafting, did you kind of have to go in and out of various different levels of handholding? Yeah, because I feel like initially I was doing a bit of telling, but I think I was unaware I was doing that. So I wasn't doing it because I felt like, okay, I need to explain what this means to non-Nigerian or non-African authors. It was more so um, I hadn't yet developed my writing skill to a certain level. Um, so, you know, the whole like golden rule show, don't tell. I was still doing a bit of like telling. And the feedback yeah. I got from an early reader was that you're open explaining, you know, some things, including, you know, some Nigerian cultural references so when it came to revising, I had to kind of like remember who my first kind of, I guess who my ideal reader is, which is, you know, a dark skinned woman who is, you know, of Nigerian heritage um, or, you know, is black British and is basically going through what Yinka is going through. So I kind of had to write Yinka's story to that person um, yeah. and try and be as authentic as possible because I wanted it to feel like, a comfort read, especially to black women, because I remember when I was younger, I was craving for a romance book uh, with a character like Hinka, and it was very hard. Yeah. And how clear was it that she was going to be a Christian and a Christian who did not want to have sex until she was married? I think I knew that from the get-go, um, because as well as not seeing many black characters, black women in, um, in fictions growing up. I also didn't see a lot of like Christian characters unless I looked at, you know, the Christian publish publishing, um, area. And at first I was thinking of like going down that route. Um, but then I felt like Yinka's story is like, it's mainstream and it's universal. And, you know, the whole kind of notion of like, um, trying to find love is something that a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. So 
And also when I did look at a few Christian um, publishers, they had quite strict submission guidelines. So for example, um, a few said that, you know, no steamy sex scenes or no swear words. And I didn't want to hold Yinka back. I wanted her to be as flawed as possible. And I wanted her to make, you know, mistakes as well. And also, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of remove the stigma attached to being celibate and being a virgin. And, you know, in society, sexual liberation is celebrated. And I want, you know, celibacy and um, virginity to be celebrated as well. And I want people to respect people's choices. Because I feel like, um, you know, a lot of people are that I know as well are celibate and they kind of feel don't feel like they can be open about it because it's not, um, it's seen as outdated. Um, or maybe they're ashamed because of their age and, and uh, I don't know, maybe they feel they're too old to be a virgin. So I kind of want to remove the shame from yeah. being, you know, a virgin. I literally, as I was reading it, I was like, gosh, I literally can't remember reading a novel with a Christian protagonist who is not in the midst of some kind of major faith crisis and basically no longer a Christian by the end, <laughs> full stop. Definitely a female-led novel and a, a celibate female Christian protagonist who it's just, it's just normal. It's just part of her life, you know, mm. she's going about it. It just was enormously refreshing. Thank Did you. the publishers get nervous? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I think they loved it. I think because it was original. And like I said, Yinka is a bit like Bridget Jones, but she's like... A totally <laughs> Less shagging yeah. around. Yeah. Um, Bridget Jones, I think... Um, I think the publishing industry are now more open to, like, um, more innovative um, stories with um, characters who don't kind of, like, fit your... Uh, cookie cutter archetype um I, I think they're yeah they're more open-minded now so yeah they loved it and even Viking which is an imprint of Penguin they made Jean Carl their lead title for 2022 which was yeah. mind-blowing for me but it just shows that we've come a, such a long way from where we are where we were sorry like 10 years ago yeah have you gone down the celibacy TikTok rabbit hole I'm not on TikTok, so... <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. I literally signed up because I was reading about this. Okay. And it was too noisy for me. It's too hectic. I can't oh. actually do TikTok. But <laughs> it's, I think you're, I think probably part of what they, that the publisher's instinct was is there's actually a really strong surge of Gen Z, I think, coming through. Some of whom for religious reasons, but a lot of them not, who are like, mm, maybe... I want to have a slightly different approach to sex. Maybe oh, okay. this is a celibacy phase. Is the um, it's like a, it's now that. it's now part of the self love repertoire. I'm going. I'm I'm, I'm doing self love by oh, not having know. sex. It's really interesting. One of the themes that comes through quite a lot is colorism, and I would say a big chunk of the listeners to say could be very familiar with colorism and what it is. But there will also be those who aren't. Would you mind just saying a little bit what it is and how it plays out in Yinka's story? Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, colorism is basically um, discrimination, most at the expense of like um, dark skin people. Um, and it kind of stems from like slavery and um, how those who were of fair complexion 
used to be like in the house with the um, slave masters and the ones with dark complexions were out in the fields picking up cotton. And so it's kind of like pushed this narrative that the lighter you are or the closer you are to being white, the, the better you are. And how that plays out in society is that you have more privileges. So whether that's, you know, um, gaining more roles in, in TV or um, seen as like, I don't know, the notion, the kind of like um, picture of beauty. Um, yeah, so quite a few privileges come with that. And um, the way it plays out in Ginka is that because she is dark skinned, she kind of like internalizes some of the messages that she sees um, in the media. So because she's not seen enough dark skinned women as love interest in movies or in music videos, um, she kind of wonders maybe the reason why that I'm single and struggling to find love is because of my complexion, because I don't look like, you know, um, the picture of beauty in society, which is, you know, close to the Eurocentric standard of beauty. And um, for me, it was really important to kind of touch on this because I felt like if I was going to have a protagonist who is dark skin, who has, you know, short, kinky hair, I need to kind of like not sugarcoat anything and also touch on some of the real trials that they go through. So for example, take Yinka's mum. She makes comments about her hair. So at one point, at the beginning, Yinka has like short, kinky, her natural hair. And then she ends up changing it. So she has that long, straight weave. And her mum prefers her hair long and straight and says, oh, now you're beautiful again. And it kind of touches on, you know, texturism and the whole thing I said about the closer you are to being white, the better you are. Did you experience colorism in your life? I did a lot of reflection while I was writing Inca and I feel like I have, but I felt like I wasn't aware. I felt like there have been incidences, but I wasn't aware at the time. Um, I do remember one time I was seeing one guy and he kept on bringing his ex and his ex was of a lighter complexion and he kept on emphasising that. And I remember I was thinking to myself, are you emphasising that so you can make me feel inferior? Like I wasn't too sure why he kept on bringing up his ex-girlfriend and also her complexion as well. So I, I remember like... Wow, that's a really specific thing to bring into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I remember that time, I, that kind of crossed, crossed my mind. Um, and I never did ask him why he did that. Yeah. I gather that it it does make a difference on sort of online dating. The research shows that... Oh, yeah. It, people's preferences play out in really unsettling ways, right? Yeah. Even some um, online dating and like algorithms... Um, can be quite colorist as well and quite racist. So um, I think my husband said that one dating app that he went on, um, I think they had this kind of like feature where you could like see like the attractive people and they were all like white people. They didn't show any like person of color and it just shows like, you know, how biased like beauty standards are in society. My mind is a bit boggled by the idea that that could be a feature on a dating app. Yeah, it's no. like, here's the real hotties over here. Press yeah, this button. <laughs> ah. <laughs> wow. Mm. And do you, obviously we've had this kind of huge um, boom in 
publishing, really seeking out people of color, voices of people of color uh, in the last, say, five years, but maybe even more recently than that. How kind of hopeful slash frustrated do you feel about the trajectory of us just getting more voices and more representation into the stories that we tell ourselves as a nation? I'm feeling um, more hopeful. I love the fact that now when I go to a bookstore, um, like before, it kind of felt like searching for like a diamond, (laughs) you know, trying to find a book by a black author or with a black person on the cover. But now it's easier to find those books. Um, However, I still kind of feel like we still have some way to go because, and it's, you know, I can only talk about the rom-com genre, which is, you know, what I write. So sometimes when I go into bookshops, they're still kind of dominated by white authors and I still feel like they are the face of rom-com. And I've seen like rom-com books by black authors put in a different section. And I'm like, okay, why couldn't that be on a table with all the other rom-coms? And I feel like there needs to be, I feel like rom-com needs to kind of like open up in terms of like what people expect. And it could be because, um, I don't know what the reason is as to why they kind of like split them into two different like areas. But um, yeah, I just kind of want, just because a story has black characters doesn't mean there's a black love story. It's a, it's a love story, you know, full stop. And um, it shouldn't be kind of excluded from the other rom-com books. Yeah, it's that universal and particular thing, isn't it? That yeah. we sort of assume that the stories of white protagonists will be interesting and accessible to everyone, mm. but that stories for, of other people's voices are somehow only of interest to them in the same way that I think women's men are just like massively less likely to open a book by a woman, whereas women read roughly equal male and female novelists. Yeah. There's this kind of sense, sense of like, what is the center of gravity? What's normal? What's <laughs> neutral? Mm-hmm. That we need to complexify a little bit, I think. I'd love to hear just a bit more about the genre itself. Um, I, we had Beth O'Leary on oh, I love quite a while ago now. I had a lovely conversation with her about, yeah, oh, she's a delight. I'll send you the yeah. link. She is exactly as you would hope. And um, we were talking about, you know, you've called them rom-coms. For, it's really fallen out of fashion now, thank goodness. But for a long time, the term was chiclet. Oh, like, yeah. put a pink cover on it. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a pair of high-heeled shoes and uh, it'll be a like, you know, fairy tale, single woman finds her man. Um, uh, and even like, not even, m- much of the writing under that title is extraordinarily complex and psychologically rich and profound, but was seen as not literature, you know something else and Beth talks talked about I don't know whether she'd still use this term but she talked about she doesn't the phrase she really likes is uplit mm. this sense that um and it struck me that actually your book falls because there is a very strong romance thread but it's not dominated mm-hmm. by a romance right it's actually much more about kind of self-love and self-discovery um that it should be a valid thing to be writing stories that are deliberately uplifting and you mentioned comforting earlier, mm-hmm. kind of the comfort of seeing our lives reflected, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's they're not good books, right? That somehow we equate uh, great art with suffering. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> the cynicism and the dark side of life. And yeah. as a sort of peppy, peppy optimist, I do find, I'm really interested in that and why we do that and why joy and comfort and silliness are somehow unserious. Do you see what I'm getting at? I'd love you to just pick up my conversational baton. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's this kind of like belief that they are easier to write and they are quite fluffy and um, it doesn't take the same kind of like emotional intelligence. Angst. (laughs) Yeah. But um, I think writing a novel, you know, regardless what genre you're writing, it's, it's difficult full stop and you know even I'm writing my second book and it's been such a roller coaster um and I feel like nowadays with like rom-coms um they are they have they kind of like show a wholesome story and by that I mean that it's not like, like I said, the focus is not just on the romance, but also like other aspects of the protagonist's life. So whether that's their family life or their career or maybe like um, touching on mental health or grief or, you know, there's so many like themes that um, rom-com authors are touching on. And to do that, also be to also be funny as well, because we can't forget about the comedy side as well. <laughs> it's a very, it's very difficult. So um, I feel like we need to get more, um, yeah, more of a break. Um, and yeah, more respect as well. Yeah, it, um, it feels like a public service sometimes, a book that can make you think and make you smile is mm-hmm. a great, um, literally a great gift and very few things make me happier. You have had one of those kind of fairy tale in itself, sort of debut novel, enormous success. You know, it was Malala's book of the week at one point. What's been the emotional journey mm. of that? And how much do you now feel, do you feel kind of responsible to use the voice and the platform that you have in a particular way? I think what I found the most kind of like heartwarming is when people reach out to me you know, whether that's via DM or via email and say, thank you so much for this book. Not only did I enjoy it, but it resonated with me. Like, I've never seen a book like this. I am Yinka. Thank you so much for representing people like us. So when I get those messages, I feel like, okay, I do have a duty to kind of like write stories which are relatable, you know, and not just entertaining, but has like a deep kind of, core message that can you know really like touch people um yeah so yeah I do feel like I have a a bit of a, a duty now Lizzie thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred thank you so much for having me so Lizzie just comes across as such a sweetheart. The fact that when I asked her what was sacred to her, it was manners, you know, being sort of so polite that if someone gave her money to not say please or thank you, she'd feel terrible and have to go around afterwards and um, say please and thank you. It just really made me laugh, that um, kind of sweet attentiveness to the people around her. it's, re- it's really interesting talking to Lizzie about this 
book which has been really um, <clears throat> very well read and very well read both by people who, like Lizzie, have a Nigerian or a black British heritage and were just so hungry for um, stories in which they could see themselves. Lizzie talks about you know, wanting to tell the kind of stories where Cinderella is black and no one bats an eyelid. You know, it's not black Cinderella, it's just Cinderella. Um, but also by people like me who just really love a rom-com. Um, and I think that attests to what she said about the way that things, finding something in common and, you know, wanting uh, to love and be loved is surely something that the majority of the population have in common. Um, really helps us enter a world that might not be our own. Um, I was thinking the other day. I'm going to. I'm going to say this, even though I have deep internal resistance to saying it, because I think it's going to make some of you take me less seriously. Um, part of my kind of egoic um, self projection is I want people to perceive me as smart, and we have certain signifiers for what smart is. Uh, but also part of my spiritual growth is leaving that behind and just trying to be myself in, in public and in private. Um, so I'm going to tell this story, which uh, sounds incredibly cheesy and twee, but was emotionally uh, really helped me understand why representation matters. Because I think it's hard for those of us who have seen themselves in pictures and magazines and billboards um, you can sort of, in theory, understand why representation matters, but not feel the weight of it. And um, someone shared a meme on Instagram <clears throat> that was Disney characters, uh, Disney heroines, redrawn to have uh, normal women's bodies. And um, there was one that looked like me. And I thought, oh, that's the first time I've ever seen that someone who's a normal shape and size and not the villain in a story. Um, and I, I, even as I felt sort of weirdly comforted and dignified, I felt embarrassed because it was a Disney character. I thought, my goodness, you're nearly 40-year-old woman. You should have grown out of this uh, need to see yourself in the world, an emotional reaction to seeing yourself in the world, you know, seeing your own image normalised in the world. But honestly, I haven't. I reacted to it quite strongly and felt really cheered by it. And that's just an incredibly sort of tiny, um, low-key moment for me of growing in empathy of why representation matters, why a range of stories matters, why particularly for people who aren't a 39-year-old overgrown child, um, it, 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 it's a way of loving our neighbours. It's a way of seeking to dignify every human being. In my theological language, who is made in the image of God, is um, increasing our range of visibility, increasing the range of who we listen to. Um, and Lizzie's obviously a really big part of that. Um, I was also thinking as I was listening to her, and again, I sort of don't want to say this, but I think it's important I, like a lot of uh, white people over the last few years, have been kind of, I think we all have as a society, increasingly aware of race and the dynamics of race and the conversation about race and our history and legacy of racism. And I have been doing the thing that I think those of us who want to be responsible citizens and good neighbours and listen to our fellow citizens have been doing, which is trying to educate myself and read books and understand and listen and all those kind of things. But 
I find reading nonfiction books on race quite difficult. It's partly because I find reading nonfiction books on most things more difficult than I do reading novels. I am a story-oriented person. But also I think it is necessarily quite direct and um, uncomfortable. And some of that is important discomfort. It's growth. It's it's coming to an awareness of where things in society aren't right that I've been blind to. Um, and I kind of don't want to just be sort of fragile and refuse to sit with some of that discomfort. Um, but also in terms of my ability to learn and grow and be a better friend and a better neighbour to um, the people of colour in my life, it just didn't feel like it was actually helping. It was just making me really um, tense all the time and nervous to talk about it and second-guessing myself and um, I felt very overwhelmed. And so I've done a different thing, which is just start reading lots of novels by people of colour. And if you also are finding educating yourself via nonfiction not as fruitful as you might have hoped, might I suggest um, either adding as a practice or temporarily or, you know, permanently replacing it with just reading a load of novels uh, by people of colour. It definitely feels to me like it's actually helping me grow in empathy rather than it being a should thing that I'm beating myself over the head with that I'm not convinced was actually helping very much. You may be very temperamentally different from me. Anyway, and especially when it's a delightful rom-com like Yinka, Whereas Your Husband or Hope and Glory, and I love both of those because they're set in my neighbourhood, but you all find ways into that, um, you know, huge wealth of literary treasure, (sighs) fantasy books, you know, poetry, whatever it is, uh, if you are some a white person who's trying to learn and listen in that way. That's what's been helping me. And finally, I thought a bit about rom-coms and what they are and this question that I'd spoken to Beth O'Leary about, like, why are they lower? <clears throat> why are they lower status? And honestly, I think it is partly because sometimes they are lower quality because they are commercial fiction. You know, publishers know literary fiction isn't going to make them any money. So the stuff they do publish, they really do believe in. Um, Not very good commercial fiction can still make publishers money. So I think we need to be a bit realistic that not all of it is very good. But a big chunk of it is really good. And the fact that it is comforting... Um, is interesting to me. I read rom-coms or romance for the same reason I read Golden Age detective novels. And I think it's something to do with the contract that the writer has with the reader that you know, you know how it's going to end. You know no one is going to die unexpectedly. <laughs> uh, I mean, in a detective novel, you do. But in a romance novel, you know no one's going to die unexpectedly. You know there might be dark themes but the ending will feel like there's some resolution. And the same thing with detective novels. Justice will prevail in a detective novel. And in a world where it's hard to believe that justice will prevail some of the time, in a world where it's hard to believe that actually love is for everyone, rom-coms and detective novels, um, maybe their escapism... Or maybe they're a way of uh, re-narrating to ourselves a hope 
that has not yet been proved negatively or positively. It's a sort of antidote to a society that is always in flux, that is always more complex than we can hold in our head, is often scary and disappointing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I feel no shame whatsoever about reading some literary fiction and a lot of rom-coms and detective novels. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Uh, Our production team are Daniel Turner and Lizzie Harvey. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at ES Oldfield, on Instagram at Elizabeth Sarah Oldfield. The Sacred underscore podcast is our tags for the podcast more generally on Twitter and Instagram. We have an email I can't remember it right now but I'm gonna uh, try and make sure we put it in the show notes we really love hearing from you thank you so much again for listening please do rate review and share us if you can spare a few seconds otherwise have a lovely rest of your day or night and we'll speak to you next time Mm -hmm.